Welcome everyone to our episode 23 in the year 2022, <laughs> 2022, and um, I, I'm really honoured to have our guest who I'll interview today and chat with and have a conversation, but first I'd like to acknowledge our traditional custodians of the land that we are all speaking on today, and in particular where I'm from, up in uh, around southeast Queensland, is the Yagara and the durable people of the land. And I, I respect and acknowledge all our traditional custodians here on this land and elders that have come from far and wide across the globe that now reside here and that we listen and learn and get all our wisdom from. I acknowledge all the Australian Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders of this land. And welcome to our special guest, Bobby Alou, or should I say Charles Wall Acker, Bobby Alou. <laughs> Bobby, welcome to Walking Through Worlds. And I'd love for you to sort of tell people a bit about what you've done. I mean, I, I can sort of give that real quick overview. You know, Bobby is obviously a, an accomplished professional artist, musician, songwriter. Uh, he's toured over 14 countries, done hundreds and hundreds of shows, probably into the thousands. Um, I, I love that he says he's, he's, a, he's a mix and, and inspired by his great people, Bill Withers, Bob Marley, Ben Harper, and of course, Fat Freddy's Drop. And I love that. There's the three Bs, Bill, Bob, Ben, and Billy. <laughs> and Bobby, Bobby, not Billy. So, welcome. Thank you. What an intro. Appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, while I'm here, I'm coming at you from, I live in Byron Bay, so I will do an acknowledgement to the Bundjalung Nation, the Arakal people. Um, and yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for interviewing or questioning. Yeah, no, I'm fascinated to explore with you um, a young Gold Coast boy. Now, you were born in this country? You were born here? Yes. So with a mother who has Samoan roots. So you've had yes. a, a cultural uh, heritage um, of which growing up on the Gold Coast, I suppose doing your primary school, doing secondary school. Um, how did you find, I mean, when did the sort of light turn on that you always had this sort of different cultural background and how did you navigate that in terms of, okay, but I'm an Australian, I'm born here. Mm. Yeah, it's a fantastic, big question to uh, to start with, and and you know that has been a big story for me my whole life, and uh, you know I'm at the point where I embrace it and I love every bit of it, but it you know it's uh, it's been a steady, interesting journey. Um, you know, my mother was one of the first Samoans to come from her village to Australia to Brisbane in the early '80s. And, you know, as I'm growing older, I'm sort of getting a bit more of a picture of her story and her life as I'm passing her ages. And, and I think back every birthday, I think back, I'm like, wow, what was mum like it in this time? And so, you know, for me personally, um, I guess I always knew that there was something a little different and I was always felt between many worlds you know, I had, I identified with all my cultures and, 
yet it was it was a balancing act. But what were your different cultures? Like your dad, where what was he? Yeah. So dad grew up in a regional town in Australia or in New South Wales called Narendra. And he's a descendant from um you know, from England basically two settlers that came to Australia, two brothers, the Wall brothers, that uh they came to Australia for a, for a new life, for a fresh life. And, you know, my father, he, he grew up in this regional town and uh, he just had this adventurous um, outlook on life and he basically wanted to move to the coast and he did and he got into scuba diving and that basically took him on a big trip around the South Pacific. And then uh, he ended up in Samoa and fell in love with the culture, the people, the diving, the, just the, the place was magical for him. And, uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history, really. Yeah. And, and is it you or you have a brother or sister? In your I have family? a younger brother. Yeah. I, there's two of us, which is quite rare for Samoans. Usually it's quite a big family. My mum's one of ten. And, you know, very, very strong culture. And I think that's something that, you know, I grew up with that I was I was pretty unaware that it was happening. And one thing that I do, um, you know, notice in my mother is, you know, she moved to Australia and, and basically big countries for small South Pacific nations, are, you know, they, they seem so magical and far mm. away and, you know, a lot lots of... Mum's family were very supportive of Mum moving to Australia for a better life. Mm. You know, in their in their eyes and in their minds. So, my mother coming to Australia, like she basically wanted the best life possible for my brother and I, and that was living in Australia, growing mm. up in the Australian culture. And so, you know, I think it was it was interesting for my brother and I um, because. We had this, you know, amongst our primary school friends, you know, we were the only people that were, were a bit different, you know, because Gold Coast was being, you know, was starting to get a lot more immigrants, but um, it was still slow. And blonde hair ladies. and blue eyes and very white. Or yeah, suntan. totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The surfing culture, you know. Yeah, that's totally yeah. it. Wow, and growing up on the Gold Coast, which part was North End or the South End? We were in the North End. Yep. Yeah. So beautiful. Um, it was. It was not. You know, I, I'm very grateful for for my upbringing. Um, it was. I went to a great school. I had really beautiful friends. And although you know, there was times that it was it was tough. You know, kids can be harsh and and mean, but uh, you know. All in all, it was it was beautiful, and and Mum's connection with her family was still so strong that there was always uncles visiting. In fact, some moved to Brisbane to to be closer together, and uh, you know my my grandparents lived with us for years from Samoa, and so there was always this thread that existed through the upbringing. And you know, at, when I was a teenager, sure it was it was it was difficult. But these days I look at it and I feel so lucky and enhanced to have these, you know, these all these different threads to look at and all these different perspectives to sit with. And, you know, it's quite often now that I feel so 
you know, lucky to, to live in Australia, yet I've got this this Samoan perspective on so many different things and blended, blending them together as I am blended, you could say, has just been a real um, advantage, I find, and I feel very lucky. What was the village uh, in Samoa? What is, what is it called? She's from Satalo village in Falealili. And, uh, you know, it's a, there's actually a famous old Samoan song, Falealili. It's a very, um, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful life. And, you know, there's been times where the first time I went to Samoa as like, you know, that I can properly remember as a teenager, I was, I felt pretty lost because I, I wasn't, you know, of, I had no idea what they were saying. Yeah. I just, you know, there was so many things that I connected with, but this, I felt so distant. And, uh, so that definitely was a journey to, to find my way of connecting. And it was through music that, um, that really I felt connected and, and proud. And, uh, I, I do remember a distinct moment where I don't know what happened. I just dropped everything. I just said, I am who I am. I've got all this, all this goodness that I can either resent or I can embrace. And I took the embrace. Yeah. I just got goosebumps then. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. power of music and then you discovering that back in your sort of mum's homeland and then making that connection through music. Um, and it would have been complex, wouldn't it? Like not knowing the language or knowing the ceremonies, knowing the rituals that Samoan people have, you know, because mm. there is a lot of, um, as I've learned, you know, along with my good friend Ty, you know, our other co-host, Ty Tungo, he's told me about the different um, elements of chiefdom, you know, within the villages, you know, of which he's now talking high chief, and each village has their group of Mai Tai. Mm. Were, were you aware right. of that sort yeah. of custom early on or was that an evolving? Yeah, oh, definitely. But but it's also it's fragmented because, mm. you know, obviously I grew up in Australia, had different life. And, and, you know, I think there was a point where I was, I was, you know, I showed a little bit of disappointment towards my mother for not being so, like, you know, clear with all these Samoan customs. And, mm. and you know, that was just me rebelling because yep. I know now that she... she basically did the best that she could and in bringing me and my brother a, a different and a better life. Um, but, uh, and, but the thing is, it's so complicated, you know, like yeah. if you're looking from the outside, there's so many, um, it's, it's, although that, you know, you could look at Polynesian life as, as being quite simple. There's lots of, um, intuitive, uh, you know, actions and things that can happen um, that that are really so intertwined in the culture and you really have to live it to, to know it and to, to be it. So, um, yeah, you know, I still find out more things and, and I have great interests and every visit, every conversation I have with aunties and uncles, um, I'm learning something new, which is, you know, I find rich and, and amazing. So as you... When you travel overseas and, um, you know, you meet different people, you know, through your concerts and tours, I mean, you obviously have an Australian passport. I mean, do you have dual citizenship with 
Samoa, or that's not a thing? No, no it's, that, it's um, yeah. You can only get that if you're a New Zealander. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, or Swiss. Yeah, true. Or from Israel. <laughs> yeah, true. All of those different choices, but not Samoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were sort of growing up, how did you, how did you find, I mean, when you found someone else from a Polynesian background, or even when did you start unpacking um, First Nations stories, you know, our own, mm. our own First Peoples? Uh, when did that sort of become aware in your sort of consciousness? Yeah, quite early on. So I think it, it all sort of happened when I was wrestling with, you know, with me, 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 which seems mm. to happen a lot. And, uh, you know, with this human existence, it's, it's, all, it's always me, me, me. But um, I think, you know, there is also a penny drop moment when you start thinking of a collective and, mm. as, and thinking of us and we. And one thing that has happened as I've been travelling around the world doing lots of shows and, and sharing my story and of this, you know, I, I, I usually sort of relate it to being on like a bridge, you know, to two worlds and, you know, you can be confused by the bridge or you could just be empowered by it. Like you can access these bridges. You, you've Like it's a bridge. You, you've got mm. access to both worlds. And, you know, there's so many people like, like me in being half Polynesian or, but not necessarily just Polynesian, but lots of different cultures around the world that have started coming to my shows. Mm. And, you know, it's definitely a really interesting time because lots of that, you know, mixture of cultures was happening in 70s, 80s, I guess, in Australia. So now there's lots of, you know, there's just so much around. Yes. Of all yep. colours and, and I think sharing that, um, you start to look uh, look out for it. You start to look out for these cultural exchanges and, yes. you know, relating back to that being a bridge in two worlds, it's the same with being on this land that we live in Australia and the Indigenous people here. You know, it's like we're on a bridge here and instead of them being separate, it's like we can they can be together. Um, yeah, I think that's said important, done. isn't it? But... Uh, but you know, I still I think having having experienced this sort of means that yeah we look out for it more um, yeah which is you know uh, and I've been lucky to go to all sorts of different countries I, I travelled with this band from Australia called Oka um, with the um, you know Indigenous Torres Strait um, man. Uh, Stu Fergie playing uh, Yudaki and you know it's amazing the connection that we shared while in Canada with some of the First Nations people mm. and and that was a real interesting talking to them and listening to their stories and uh, obviously it's um, very similar to what's happening here. It's interesting those bonds between the Canadian First Peoples and Australian First Peoples and Samoan and Polynesian, like there's a deep connection mm. there, isn't there? Um, yeah, 100%. The way the families are raised, uh, the social challenges that they are, you know, still facing as the broader Polynesian youth population mm. is about um, losing their connection to who they are, you know, their meaning, their identity, their belonging. 
growing up as a young person, if they hadn't found that thing that grounded them, like you found music as a centre point, um, Brother Ty and I always talk, talk about um, the youth justice system. You know, in, in the prisons, mm. there's, uh, there's over 50% of First Nations, but the other 50% are Polynesians, you know, yeah. disengaged. Um, and part of it is because they've come away from their country or they've been born here or they've come here at a young age and they, they, they lose that rites of passage you know, mm. of manhood, you know, going through 10, 11, 12, 13, through that sort of puberty period, which we know in First Nations uh, now, that, that kipper ring and, you know, the, the, the sort of initiations that took place was a very important step to ground them and cement them for the future. I mean, thankfully, you, you probably look back that music thing. How old were you when that sort of penny dropped? around that age was it yeah it was a teenage yeah it was it was probably my late teens like it was always there but i think you know it's interesting like the word that you we use a lot is, is the connection you mm. know like and and that is is something that's really common that i've noticed on lots of first nations people and small countries like in the south pacific is lots of the society relies on connection you know, emotional connection, connection to the land. And it's it's also when that's lost, there's a real displacement. And uh, and I think, and it's, it's it's also works in the other way around. Like when you do feel the connection, it's like, oh, the, 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 that, the penny drops, you know. And, and for me, late teens, connecting music with, um, you know, my culture and just being feeling good and, and right in who I was and what I was doing for the world. And, um, yeah, I think that was a big penny drop moment for me. Well, the influences you, that we talked about in the beginning, you know, Bill Withers, um, and was that from your mum? Was she a big Bill Withers fan? Yeah, totally. Yeah. My uncles and, and were big, um, reggae and soul listeners. So yeah, I, I cut lots of, lots of the time. I don't think, like I've, I always say that I didn't have a choice on what music style I ended up playing because I was just, you know, drowned <laughs> in all this stuff. And then now, you know, I can't write music without it having this Polynesian flavour. And I was just like, well, it's, you know, it's not, my, it's not me. <laughs> yeah. And the rise of the ukulele. It's interesting mm. um, because, you know, many years I had my own guitar shops and, you know, rode that wave of the acoustic guitar, the rise mm. of the acoustic guitar, well, it rose over a long period of time, but then I was away from it about 2010, and all of a sudden these shops kept appearing that were just selling ukuleles. Um, amazing. Yeah, and it's just become an amazing accessible instrument, really, isn't it? Very accessible, which is why yeah. the Polynesian connection there, you know, through the, the Hawaiians, the Tahitians, Mm -hmm. you know, the Samoans, uh, it's very strong, isn't it? So when did you first pick up the ukulele? Was it a younger age? Yeah, it was young. Well, my mum played it, you know, and uh, we had a few around the house. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was, you know, it's interesting. Like, I get that question a lot of when you started playing. And um, I think 
like I actually can't quite remember because it was always there. There was always drums. There was always ukuleles. And I think the first time I actively really was like, okay, I'm going to play this was, you know, kind of, I guess around 10 or 11. Um, but still it was, it was all for fun and it was just, it was just conveniently there. And, and I think that's what also what I love about Polynesian culture, not just Samoan culture is this, this integration of music in life and singing, you know, it's, it's no, it's no big thing to just sing. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's no big thing also to cry or to be angry. It's, you know, this, this, um, output of emotion is really, I think is really healthy and, uh, you know, yeah, this, and, and, and I had that my, during growing up, you know, in Australia and I just wasn't aware of it. It was just happening. And now as I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, I guess now that I'm a professional, um, I can, that was my formal training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you do music at school at all? Was it? No, I didn't. Yeah. No. Is that amazing? It was, yeah, it was, it just really just took over my life when I went there. I ended up doing music at uni. So, yes. you know, and that, but that was post when I was like actively set this time. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go for this. Um, but that was um, after your first yeah. album, wasn't it? Had you? Yeah. So my, well, my first album was my university assignment. Ah. So it was all happening around that. And this time. is at Southport and uh, yes. the Griffith Uni there that had 24-7 access to a recording studio for students. 100%. Yeah, for students. <laughs> it was a dream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. living the dream there, totally. And it, I noticed it really that, was. I noticed that you've um, revisited that. Have you reimagined that album that you recorded 10 years ago? Yeah, um, I have. A, you know. And you released that? Is that that's come out now? Yeah, that's out now. I um, well, you know, you click your fingers and time goes quickly. Yeah, uh, and I just, you know, when COVID hit, twenty twenty, uh, at home, I set up a home studio, and yeah, I just realised it had been ten years since I'd released it, the very first album. Mm. So I just started looking at the songs again and thinking about that time, and um, yeah, about everything that's happened since. And so, yeah, I just re-recorded them and, and some versions are the similar, some are a little bit different. I just thought it would be a nice little project to, um, yeah, to, to revisit these songs. So you also toured with uh, Xavier, right? And you performed drums in his band. Is that right there at some stage? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I met uh, Xavier at a, um, a actually a... Uh, Colson gas rally um, <laughs> in Lismore. Yeah, um, yeah, just yeah, just we had some mutual friends, and he suggested if we uh, we should have a jam, and uh, we had a twenty minute jam, and then he said, "Oh, let's let's do a gig," mm. and uh, the first gig was actually Blues Fest, the two twenty thousand people, <laughs> and I had no idea, and. Uh, yeah, so I'm standing backstage about to go on stage. Now, we'd played for 20 minutes, but the set was one hour. So I was like, ah, what is going to happen? And um, and then we did the show. It went great. And and then, yeah, like a month later, I jumped on the tour bus with him around the US. And, and we, we're still very good friends. And we played together for – I toured with him as his primary drummer for five years. 
that would have been an amazing experience. Yeah, incredible experience. And I saw, reading a little bit about Xavier, his own personal background of discovering or or knowing that he was First Nations as well and Mm. and taking that out to the world and navigating. And, you know, he talked about that a lot, you know, his connection and that back to connection and, and his... He found out that his grandmother was part of the stolen generation, and they still don't know exactly where she came from. But um, it's been a long journey to try and sort of hash all that up, and uh, you know, and for him, connecting with that culture and being an activist for um, you know Indigenous rights in Australia and the world um, has been you know a real identity and. and um, a beautiful thing for him in his life. Yeah, so I noticed that they'd, um, up in Arnhem Land, they gave him, where they bring him into the tribe and initiate him, they give him mm-hmm. tribal recognition. Because uh, it's always difficult, I could imagine, being First Nations, having your grandmother stolen, you're not mm-hmm. really clear on who your traditional people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of people will attack that because they'll say, oh, you know, they're just using that as leverage Mm. you know but there are so many australians who realize and i've met so many who say to me i know that i've got first nations um connections you know in my lineage Mm. but i'm not even going to mention it they think because here i am at 30 you know or 40 and i don't want to come out and say it because people just think i'm wanting to tick a box you know and Mm. and and but I say, no, don't, don't, don't be ashamed. Go for it. Like, that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, there, there are so many. I think that's why I remember in one year about maybe it was 15, 20 years ago, they used to say there are 300,000 First Nations people in Australia. And now, because people are actually not afraid, you know, after that story got told about bringing them home, you know, the whole UN uh, investigation report into the stolen generation, more and more people came forward. And now I think we're up to 800,000. Wow, you know, some yeah. large number. I mean, it's still 3%, but I think the number was very small for a number of years. Mm. Um, you know, and there is so much beautiful uh, authorship you know, through many writings now about those journeys and uh-huh. the healing of those journeys, um, you know, the families realising what's been done to them and also I suppose there's more coming together, uh, hopefully even more than there has been into the future, yeah. you know. Yeah, you I feel like there is, there is an undercurrent, there is movement. It's slow, but yes. there is movement and... You know, I, yeah, I just hope that, uh, that it continues and that there's this, you know, what I'd love to see is just there's, there's a pride, the pride. I feel like that's a big, um, big step in, in, you know, imagine a country where everyone's proud of the Indigenous culture. It'd just be, it'd be such a different feeling and such a different shift, you know, the way that, you know, because I'm proud of it. I'm proud that I live in Australia and there's the, the oldest living culture to ever exist is here. It's incredible. And, and, the, and the, you know, it should be in, 
in primary schools, all our education should be Indigenous stories and, you know, like there's so much there and it's happening, it's just super slow, but we'll get it's there. super slow and it's in small chunks. Um, Uncle Alan Parsons, um, he, I've interviewed him twice on the podcast and mm-hmm. he goes out to four-year-olds in kindergartens and tells the story, the dreaming, the rainbow serpent. He introduces them to the, to the yeah, ancient stories, mm-hmm. uh, which... He gets excited when a four-year-old goes home and tells his, her, their dad that they had this First Nations man come and talk and he talked about the power of the yarning circle. So dad was a mm. landscaper and turned up at the, uh, at the kindergarten and bought these big sandstone blocks and created a yarning circle for the kids to have. How powerful mm. is that? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah. you know. And you're right, yeah, it's I never got had to start. That. It's got to start at such a young age, um, this sharing. Uh, mm. and, and as you say, time goes so quickly. Within 20 years, you've got babies in primary school, and by 2040, you've got this educated group of young people who are in yeah. their 20s understanding the stories and helping support um, First Nations to find you know, they themselves and not be, um, feel like they're disconnected, you know, mm, to their yeah. country. And, and a lot aren't. I mean, a lot are connected to country. I've found a lot now exploring more and being more open about where they've come from. Mm-hmm. But there's still so many disengaged, uh, you know, through the trauma over generations, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, Baby you're steps. right. Hey, baby steps. Yeah. Well, in terms of Indigenous timelines too, I mean, we mm-hmm. say slowly. And so if, you know, we look at 67 as a, as a major sort of uh, point in terms of Australian, uh, it's not that long ago, you know, 1967 when they were not flora and fauna, mm. you know, that they actually could vote. Uh, it's not that long ago. So... You know, even the Sorry movement, yes, it's 2008, but, uh, you know, we've got still a lot more healing and stories to share to get and educate people. Hence, you know, even having you here on the show talking about growing up as an Australian with a Samoan heritage and even probably becoming a Samoan man who is Australian and walking in those three worlds, mm-hmm. you know, the Gold Coastian or the <laughs> the Samoan and the Australian. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it's a, it's an easy. Like I, I feel that the easy way out is to complain or to throw it away. You know, to to look at something like it's their fault or it's their problem. You know, it's like, yeah, it's just there. There's, there's, there's a choice. You know, you can make a choice. You can sort of look at it negatively, or you can just try and embrace it. And like we get that, we get that choice every day with every little task that we do. And you know, that's the business that I feel like I'm in is is trying to encourage myself and everyone to look at themselves look at ourselves and 
how that we can improve our lives and the people around us, you know? So have you thought and talked much about, you know, those key issues that are sort of, I suppose, part of this healing that First Nations and, you know, the broader community are aware of? I mean, I know even us just having this discussion, we're not going to solve anything, but making people aware um, of the Uluru Statement of the Heart, you know, in 2015, you know, as mm -hmm. that progresses, um, you know, uh, around a treaty or around constitutional recognition uh, or, you know, what... And I know this is just an opinion sort of seeking, not saying that you have all the answers either, but what, what would you think, looking at and talking about this stuff, what is a way forward? Is the Uluru Statement of the Heart about sovereignty, mm -hmm. accepting that this land was never ceded uh, by the First Nations people, you know, that was stolen, you know, if you look at it historically. Um, what do you feel is a better way for the treaty or a constitutional recognition, which only really writes them as a footnote into, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of English uh, or the British experiment? What's your thought? Is a treaty like Yoffi Indy sung about still a way to go? Or do you That's have a, a good question. Option? Yeah, I think I I think it is. I feel like there's lots of parts to this puzzle mm. and picture though. And and I, I do feel like that is a step that you know, many indigenous people require and need. And, you know, I think like going back to, you know, um, my story and in, 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 in drawing from what I've grown up learning and listening, the thing I, that I love about Samoan culture is there's so many fundamentals about being present, compassionate and, and listening. There's lots of, there's lots of meetings in Samoa, I'm sure. Kitchen, kitchen, that you know, and I guess that for me, I always try and get to these real simple, simple um, fundamentals, and a lot of it is compassion and listening. And I, and I feel like how many times when you're in the middle of a conversation, you're thinking about what you're going to say, and you're not even listening to the person you're talking to. And um, you know, I feel like that listening game hasn't you know, we're not so good at it when we're trying to, there's all these people making up, you know, ways to help the Indigenous, but it's like we've got to listen to what they believe and what they think and what they need. Um, and if, if a treaty is a part of that, then sure, um, you know, I'm all for it, but I'm all, I'm, I'm all for conversations like this and because I know nothing, too, you know, so uh, that's the way I get educated is, is to have conversations like this and conversations with um, Indigenous people and, and just, yeah, just to keep moving through it slowly. Yeah, because it is complex with so many uh, different views and so many different experiences and carrying the generational trauma too. Um, and the other contentious one, and we've dealt with this um, uh, on this 
podcast several times, you know. Again, not to solve it, but to make people, mm. the listeners, go away and do their own thinking and talking and listening. Um, change the date, you know, Australia Day, Evasion yeah. Day, Survival Day. I mean, I've read lots and lots about this topic to try to get my head around it. Mm. And I know that I'm not going to affect the outcome, but you realise it's so complex, even by changing the date, any other date you pick has equally as much trauma uh, mm. around those dates. You know, some people are pretty clear about what another date should be and what its meaning is. And it's so complex because of the emotion of, you know, this particular line in the sand that people think change, but I read a beautiful book about the 300 years prior to colonisation and what could have occurred. There were so many sliding mm. door moments. We could have been wow. French. We could have been Portuguese. Yeah. We could have been Dutch. We were Dutch. You know, the Dutch were trading here. Although the First Nations people weren't necessarily interested in trading except with the Macassans, you know, up in the Indonesian mm -hmm. islands. But it's fascinating that changing the date is not the ultimate answer but it could be too i mean i'm not saying i'm not trying to even say that i know but stan grant summed it up beautifully and said by changing the date really doesn't change anything we've got to really connect these stories and mm. probably that day should be both stories should be shared in that same movement which is how you bring cognitive dissonance together holding two different belief ideas and merging them and fusing them, you know, yeah. there lies the potential answer, maybe. But I'm not saying. If they moved it, I'd be happy. If the broader First Nations people were more comfortable with a different date, I will absolutely support it. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 a real, you know, like you say, it is. It's just such a big loaded topic, and it, and how how do we unload it in a way, you know? Yeah, because yeah, it's it is sort complex. Of like, we're in this present moment and we're looking to the past and we're looking to the future. And it's a, in those three worlds, who, what's more important here? Is the future more important than the past? You know? And I would say, yes, like, as a, like I believe in acknowledgement and, but also believe in, you know, making a better future by doing stuff now. I agree, and that's the separate silos can be quite... You end up with a divisive mechanism. In other words, it's always been known historically that power loves to divide. And in this debate of whether it's Invasion Day or whether it's Australia Day, creates a divide. And therefore, mm. the, the power, you know, the energy of power seeks to love that, loves mm. the fact that there's this divisive mechanism. And through coming together and healing and unification, you can sort of stop that divide, you know. So mm. that's probably the bigger picture. It's, it's hard because people want to fly the Australian flag and, you know, First Nations people and all the allies and supporters want to fly the Aboriginal flag, mm. which even that there for a while was quite a contentious issue, you know, when someone trademarked it and... <laughs> no, yeah. through the intellectual property. Thankfully, at least I suppose that's relieved some of that tension, but we need to mm. relieve some more tension or have at least some really serious uh, listening. 
sessions mm. with First Nations people and try to resolve it because it really feels like it will never resolve. But I know it will at some point, you know. Mm. But we don't want it to. Re- we don't want it resolved with atrocities or any violence. We want it to be resolved in a really passive, non non-violent way, you know. Yeah, and I guess it, you know, circling back to what we've spoken a, a bit about, it, it's it is about, you know, it's going back to that connection issue. You know, it's like we're, we're all basically trying to connect. The, the person that wants to wave that Australian flag is because they want to be proud of the Australian culture that, that that represents them, and and likewise for the people that don't want to hang that, you know, don't want to raise that flag. So it's. Um, yeah, you know, I completely hear what you're saying, and it is a journey to um, share that um, connection and imagine, imagine being everyone being connected to Indigenous culture. You know, have their connection and be proud of it. It would be special, you know. And, and I think lots of people don't know how. I don't know how. Um, hmm. You know, and and that's a big journey for everyone is to define their place in connecting with this beautiful culture. Exactly. I, I agree uh, 100%. And, and it's exploring it and talking to mm. as many different First Nations views, you know, and, and being respectful that all of those views have come about through their own living journey. You know, we mm. haven't lived it. They've lived it through generations. But... Um, I think summing up, and we should uh, let you go and go to surf (laughs) 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 and uh, enjoy your day with your family. Um, I just want to thank you so much for our conversations today. Uh, It's been very insightful uh, as you navigate your own culture um, and navigate COVID like all of us coming out post-COVID very soon, hopefully in days. (laughs) Whatever that means, yeah. I'm just wishful for sure. thinking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, thanks um, for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And um, no, yeah, thanks for doing what you do. It's a beautiful podcast. Thank you, Bo. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. And uh, thanks, everyone. And don't forget to see us uh, our website, www.walkingthroughworlds.com. Catch us on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, every platform that you can imagine. I think we're on there. And, of course, at YouTube, uh, our YouTube channel. Keep watching. Support us if you want uh, to help in any little way that I can pay my editing team uh, through Patreon, uh, patreon.com. Just go to our website. You'll see the Patreon button. Any help, $3 a month, $6 a month, $10 a month. Uh, we'll even give you bonuses for all of, any or all of those. We'd love any contributors. And I also pay my respects to all those contributors that are helping us Uh, There's only a small handful, but I love you all. Um, Thanks, Bobby. Have a great day. All right? You too. Thanks so much.